right, good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you. This um, looks beautiful here, but I, not everything fits on the pulpit, so I'll try to work with this. But um, no, really glad to be here with everyone. Um, it is always a privilege uh, for me to preach the word for us. So yeah, I'll get right into it. I know Thanksgiving was over a week ago. For some reason, it feels like it was even longer. Uh, but one thing I'm very thankful for this year is that unless something crazy happens, I'm going to be done with seminary in less than two weeks. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it's been almost four years since I you know, started at Talbot to start my studies and get equipped for pastoral ministry. Um, and needless to say, it's been a whirlwind of a journey. I started you know, a couple months after I started attending this church here. Um, so for all the negatives people have to say about seminary, you know, they call seminary cemetery and all these stereotypes, um, it's been nothing but a joy for me uh, these past four years to, to learn, uh, to meet professors and fellow co-laborers. But at the same time, um, it feels right. It feels appropriate that these four years are finally coming to an end. Um, and, you know, I started getting a little bit nostalgic, started thinking back, reflecting like, hey, like, what have I really learned from these past four years, right? Um, and as I was doing that, for some reason, like, a particular class or a professor didn't come up, but, like, this street kept coming to my mind. It's, it's Rosecrans Avenue. I think a lot of you are familiar with that street. And, you know, I think it's just so symbolic of my time at Talbot because I would I drove so many miles, right, from, from school to stereoscope coffee and back, all that time there, um, going down Rosecrans to Clark Park, right, because we had community group outdoors last season during COVID. Um, and, you know, for many other reasons, I would drive down Rosecrans. And, you know, I did a little bit of research. It's weird, but I did some research. And, you know, uh, Rosecrans just goes from miles and miles east to west, but it actually ends on the intersection of Rosecrans and Euclid, right? So I guess that's something Fullerton has going for itself. And I drive by this intersection all the time, but for some reason, as I was, you know, reflecting back on my time in seminary, one building caught my eye on Rosecrans and Euclid. I think a lot of us here are familiar with it. Um, you're probably familiar with it because you've either worked there or are working there right now, or in the future, we'll send your kids there. Uh, this place is called Elite Educational Institute. It's the, the tutoring place, and I've never went to elite, I never went to like a tutoring thing, but for some reason it made me think about, you know, high school, and I went way back, right? And I started thinking like, hey, all those tests I took, all the SATs that I studied for, AP tests, all that, and then, you know, in my mind it works really weirdly, like it led me down to think about our education system, and I know we have a lot of educators here, so I'm not going to say anything to offend anyone, but, you know, this concept of proving your, your proficiency in a subject by passing a test, it's so ingrained in us, right? We, 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 it's so ingrained in us to the point where we think, hey, by passing a test, by doing well on this exam, we're almost proving our worth, our value, right? We derive our worth from that. And then it got me thinking more. It's not just at school or academic settings, but it, it follows us all throughout life, right? It's not just SATs, but we try to prove our worth in college by getting good grades or internships. Um, we prove our worth by how much we make from our job, how big our salary is, right? Our performance in the workplace, how well we love our spouse, how devoted and loyal we are to our families. So in a twisted way, like, we can describe life as just passing a bunch of tests all throughout life, right? There are many tests throughout our life that we kind of have to 
pass and prove our worth and value. And that made me think, again, this is how my brain works, about our passage for today, uh, which is Luke 4. So if you'll turn with me to Luke 4, we'll look at verses 1 to 13, and it's a well-known passage. It's a passage that recounts Jesus being tempted by the devil. If you're just joining us today, as Pastor Sam mentioned, we started a new series last week in the season of Advent, where we're focusing, we're really honing in on the incarnation, right? And again, as Pastor Sam shared last week, it's crucial that we understand that Jesus Christ, he was not just God, he was not just a man, but he was fully God, fully man. Not a combination, not one or the other, but fully God and fully man. My community group last week, we actually got to discuss the sermon a little bit, and you know, it was really encouraging uh, because we were honest. We, we, we all said, hey, we understood, we've heard a lot of us growing up that Jesus was man and God, right? Okay, conceptually that makes sense, but when it comes down to it, it's really hard for us to truly believe, right, that Jesus was actually a man, right? We think, hey, he might have a physical body, but mentally, his mind, it, it was still God, right? It was divine, so he couldn't really have faced temptation like we do, Right? And again, nothing, nothing bad about our community group, but we we're just honest. We we're sharing, hey, like, it almost feels like Jesus' fight against temptation, it's cheapened, or it's like, it's not legit, right? And that got me thinking, hey, it's like, basically what we're saying is Jesus, he might have had the answer key or the essay prompts ahead of time, right? Because he was God, because he couldn't sin, it's almost as if Jesus cheated, right? He had resources available to him. But again, as we focus on the incarnation, we have to understand that Jesus, he faced temptation just as we do today. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that he had to become made just like us to account for our sins. And as we heard last week, that was the exact purpose of the incarnation. In our passage today, we're going to look at three temptations that Jesus faced as fully man, which provide for us a template for us to fight against sin. So we'll go through this narrative, this story and look at what the temptations targeted, how Jesus resisted, and see how all of this applies to us. So I'm not going to read the whole passage, but we'll go through it as a story, as it's meant to be read. So we'll start in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It's the reading of God's word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended... He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. We're going to camp out on this first temptation a bit longer than the others, since the setting and the context, uh, they're all established in verse 1 and 2. And to any story, right, those two key components are crucial, the setting and the context. So we see in verse 1 that Jesus, he he just returned from the Jordan. What does that mean? It means these temptations that are about to happen, happen right after he's baptized. Right? Luke 3.22, a couple verses before, it tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And God the Father, he stated, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So this is the first key detail. Jesus' identity as the son of God was publicly affirmed. And next in verse 1, we see that before Jesus began his earthly ministry, he was full of the Holy Spirit. 
He was led by the Spirit. And that's really important. That's the second key detail because we're going to see that in our fight against temptation, the Holy Spirit plays such a huge part. So in verse 1 alone, we see that Jesus' identity has been established, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 2 sets up the rest of the background information, uh, which I think many of us are familiar with, right? Jesus, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and, you know, I could talk about all the allegories about that, but not today. But he was tempted by the devil. That's the important thing, right? He was tempted by the devil while he was fasting. So translation, there was this really hungry man in the middle of a desert that seemed to be the prime vulnerable target for the devil to attack, right? And I, I read from the ESV, but the ESV simply reads, he was hungry, right, in verse 3. He was, he was hungry. But the Greek word actually means to, to feel the pangs of lack of food, right? And this, again, affirms Jesus' incarnation. Jesus really was a man. He felt hunger, right? The most time I've spent going without food is like maybe a day, right? I spent like a month overseas and, you know, even going one day without food, I was just like, oh my goodness, like, when Lord, right? But Jesus here, the text says for about six weeks, Jesus really felt hunger, really felt hunger as a man, hunger that probably none of us in this room have ever felt before. And I, I have to mention as well, in Jesus' time, the wilderness was seen as the most dangerous place. Right? Not only physically because there were wild beasts and there was no one around to help you, but spiritually the wilderness was seen as a place where demonic activity took place. So safe to say that Jesus, he, he wasn't in the most ideal situation. And I think it's easy for us to read this story, to read Luke 4, and get this feeling that, hey, Jesus was tired, he was exhausted, man, he was so susceptible to fall, Right? There's something I read from a, a book written by John Mark Homer. Uh, his name might sound familiar, um, but in his book, Live No Lies, there's this paragraph that really just stuck with me. It's still like, ever since I read it, it's been with me for, until now. And Comer, he's talking about fasting. Right? He's talking about the practice of going without food physically. And he flips our traditional approach. Right? Our, our passage, our understanding, we might think the devil, he waited until Jesus was weakened, physically invulnerable to sin. But Comer, he says, quote, this is a gross misunderstanding of the reciprocal relationship between fasting and spiritual power. Forty days in, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual power and was able to wisely discern the devil's lies and dismiss his temptations with adroit skill. He uses like really fancy words, but how powerful is that, right? To read that and understand, though Jesus was empty physically, he was full spiritually. The Holy Spirit was dwelling within him. Even though his hung hunger pangs were no doubt impossible to ignore, it was during the 40 days of fasting, of turning his full attention to God, that allowed him to be at the height of his spiritual power, spiritual wisdom, and his spiritual readiness to fight temptation. So with these key details in mind, we can finally get to the first temptation, right? The devil, knowing just how tired, knowing the physical state that Jesus was in, he tries to exploit that hunger, and he asks him, hey, Jesus, turn this stone into bread. Okay, that's not a bad thing, right? I don't think Satan is doing anything that's, like, inherently bad. Um, bread, back then, that was, like, the main source of food, 
for people. Like, they didn't have access to all this food. We're spoiled in SoCal, right? But bread was the main thing people ate back then. And bread is not a bad thing, right? Unless you're on a ketogenic diet. But bread was not a bad thing. Jesus, in his divinity, he could have easily turned stone into bread. But also remember that Jesus is human, right? I can't turn bread, stone into bread, and I don't know if anyone else here can just by looking at it and telling it to turn into bread. But Jesus effectively was being invited, hey, suspend your humanity, access your divinity. If you are the Son of God, use your power, do what you can to turn this stone into bread and to feed yourself. Uh, I know there's a group of uh, brothers and sisters at our church that just, I think, finished a weight loss challenge. Um, I'm not going to say any more about that, but I I couldn't think of you guys, or I couldn't help but think of you guys because, yeah, like, having to, I know some of these brothers, I know some of these sisters, and, like, I'm talking to them, we're, like, fellowshipping, like, hey, like, you're not going to eat, like, fried chicken? Like, no, I can't. Like, why? Like, I need to win. What do you win? Like, winning team gets really good food which is super ironic, right? But let's imagine, for some reason, you and I, we're in this challenge too, right? We're in this challenge to see how much weight we can lose. So imagine in the middle of the night, right? And this is, like, based on a true story, like, based on my experience, like, middle of the night, like, when I was intermittent fasting, I would just, like, open up my cabinet, right? Like, dang, like, I wish I could have some of this, you know? For the 10th time, I I open up the fridge, like, Nothing's changed. Like, I still can't have any of this, right? That temptation is so real. But imagine um, you get a text, middle of the night, someone from the other team. Like, hey, I recently found this this type of steak that tastes like it's from Mastro's, but zero calories. Like, you down, right? If I got that text, I'd be like, dude, like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you trying to trick me? What are you, you're, you're lying to me, right? Because we know there's no such food that, that tastes as good as Mastro's but has zero caloric value, right? But what if it were true, right? What if there was such a food? Would we take it, right? But again, we know that nothing like that exists in the world because, you know, this is my opinion, but any food that tastes good, like, there's a lot of calories in it, right? And that's a silly example, but I think this is the same sort of temptation that Jesus was facing, Right? The temptation was to, quote-unquote, cheat on his humanity by turning stone into bread. Right? The issue isn't that the devil was tempting Jesus to do something bad. Right? He wasn't saying, hey, go rob this shawarma place or like, kill this guy and I'll give you bread. He wasn't saying any of that. He's not saying do something bad. The issue here is that the devil, he was trying to tempt Jesus to act apart from dependence upon God. Right? The, the verb for being tempted in the Greek, it literally means to entice, to persuade, to improper behavior, right? So the devil's not telling him to do anything bad, but he's trying to make him do something improper, something that wasn't expected of him. And I love this quote from Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke. This is the last quote, so no, you don't have to read too much. Um, but Daryl Bach, he says, the devil was really suggesting that perhaps God was abandoning Jesus, and so he had better look out for himself, And then he talks and addresses the reader, us. Is not God treating you poorly? And so take care of yourself. You can look out for yourself better than God can look out for you. Right? God doesn't care about you. He's abandoned you. So so go figure it out. Take care of yourself. 
I mean, when we read it, it seems like, hey, like, that will never happen. But isn't that the exact sort of lie that we fall for all the time? Don't we compare our lives to everyone around us and kind of feel like, hey, like, what did that guy do to be so ahead of me, right? How come this guy is so entitled to everything that he has? And how come my life is so hard, right? We can't turn stone into bread, but we kind of approach our lives in this kind of way. We have to take matters into our own hand. And I'm going to talk about work. Work itself is not a bad thing, right? But when we examine just how much time we spend working, especially now that most of us are working from home and, like, that work-life balance is out of whack, how much time do we spend? How much mental space do our careers take up? Right? When we examine, don't we have to admit that sometimes our actions reflect that we don't trust in God? That he feels distant from us. That he doesn't care about us. And when we feel like that, we have to take matters into our own hand. Right? Rather than depending upon God, we're tempted not by the impossible things, not to turn stone into bread, but by the things that regularly force us to satisfy our own needs, our own desires. Right? And, and our, culture, our culture thrives for security. In the long run, we, we want security. So that's why starting from childhood, we go to um, test prep, we take you know, classes for SATs, we obsess over what college to go to, and it goes on and on and on, right? Yet how does Jesus respond to this temptation, to take matters into his own hand? He answers by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So simple, so wise. But here, Jesus is not saying, hey, because I'm fully God, I don't need bread. No, he's saying, I'm human, but we don't live by bread alone, right? You and I as human beings, we don't live by bread alone, but implied in his response is the rest of Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He's saying that as much as our physical needs are important, need to be taken care of, our spiritual needs for the Christian is highest on our list of priorities. Right? We have to take care of our spiritual needs by obeying God and trusting in Him, trusting that He's going to provide. But for many of us, our experience, it's the reverse, right? Aren't we more often full physically but empty spiritually? Don't we spend extravagant amounts of time and money to eat good food, go to expensive restaurants while we neglect our time in prayer? Don't we put a lot more effort into planning our next vacation or our next trip instead of spending time in the scriptures? Jesus, he, he clearly demonstrated to us that life for the Christian is about trusting and doing God's will rather than providing for our own wants, our own needs, right? So that's the first temptation. Let's, let's move on to the second. We're going to pick up in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, I'll all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, people kind of argue like, hey, was this a vision that Satan showed him, or did he actually take him to a physical place? Um, we could argue about that later. But the point is clear. Jesus was in the wilderness where there was nothing, and Satan was offering him everything, 
right? To this seemingly ordinary man in the middle of nowhere, the devil offers all the kingdoms of the world. All of it. For seemingly very small price. Right? The ESV reads, if you then will worship me, but the term for, for worship is uh, literally to, can't do it, but you know, bowing down on your knee in front of someone, and that would symbolize obedience, submission, reverence. So what is happening here is Jesus, he could have quickly just taken a knee real quick, and he would have had the whole world, right? Uh, you know, as I was reading this, like, I, could, I couldn't help but think about that. There's this one YouTube video, like, it's an edit of The Lord of the Rings. Um, and Frodo, he just takes an eagle, goes to Mordor, drops the ring, and it's like, boom, done, right? We don't have to waste 558 theatrical minutes to destroy the one ring, right? The whole series could have been resolved in an instant. This is what the devil is offering to Jesus, right? Just like the first temptation, this one doesn't seem entirely unreasonable, right? Psalm 2.8 is a messianic psalm, and it tells that, hey, God's plan for all of creation was to make the nations Jesus' heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. Earlier in Luke 1.33, Luke makes it explicit. He writes, Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Right, so Satan knows one way or another, Jesus is going to have authority over all the kingdoms of the world. So he thinks, hey, if this is going to happen, if this is what's been prophesied, why don't I try to use that to my advantage, right? So he offers to, to Jesus something that God had promised him, the Father had promised him. And if you recall, Pastor Sam, last week he mentioned that one purpose of the incarnation was for God's glory, right? God's plan was to always display his glory in all of creation through Christ our Lord, eventually culminating in his rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. But just as with bread, just as with the stone to bread, Satan's not offering Jesus a bad thing, right? But the kingdoms of the earth and the authority and the glory, those are good and even necessary things for Jesus. But the issue here is not with what Satan is offering, but with how, right? How will Jesus obtain his kingdom? Would he avoid the long and cruel agony of the cross in exchange for a quick momentary bow to Satan? Would he take a shortcut, right? Would he basically take a shortcut to becoming the Messiah that was prophesied about, right? Would he skip out on the persecution, the suffering, the pain, all of that that was to come? Would he essentially be taking the, the answer key to the scantron of this crucifixion and bypass everything that led up to it? Would he cheat on the process of redemption? Verse 8 tells us he didn't. Right? He quotes Deuteronomy again, this time chapter 6, verse 13. He says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Right? As attractive as this offer seemed to him to skip out on persecution and, and suffering, Jesus knew to worship anyone or anything other than God is simply sin. Right? We know that. And he knew that the process, the how of the redemption, required the cross, required suffering, required his death. There's no shortcut to gaining the everlasting kingdom, right? He had to buckle in for every rejection, every hostile Pharisee, every insult that was hurled at him. And we'll take a brief break. I forgot who or where I heard this from, but recently um, the, the, the topic of proofs in geometry, I heard that somewhere. And I remember when I was in high school, um, proofs were the least favorite part of my test, right? Because like, I couldn't just 
memorize numbers or formulas. Like, I have to actually understand how this rectangle's area is equal to this square's area. You know, like, all that stuff. Like, do we really need to know? Like, when do I use this, right? But my teacher, my ninth grade geometry teacher, her name was Mrs. Bruch, uh, and she really doubled down. Like, hey, you really have to know how to prove you know, your knowledge of this, this triangle. How does triangle ABC equals, equal to triangle EFG, right? She gave no, no partial credit, right? Even if I got the right answer, even if I was able to like, somehow come up with the answer, like, if my proofs, if each step was not correct, she didn't give partial credit. It was zero, right? So yeah, those problems, I, I hated them. And I realized, you know, ever, uh, even before I um, had the pass-no-pass no pass grading system in college, like I experienced it in high school, but I say that to, to show that this was the case with Jesus, right? There was no partial credit in his plan for redemption. He had to get every step of his proof correct. He had to experience every temptation, every trial, every test, every suffering as a man, not as God, just like us, to ensure our salvation. If he slipped up even once, in a proof of like, I don't know, like 45 steps, if he even missed one, no partial credit, zero no pass, right? No pass, no salvation, no redemption, no atonement, no fancy words. But we know from, from this text and the rest of the Bible that he passed every single test thrown at him. He resisted every temptation, every step, and he proved himself as worthy to atone for sin on our behalf. You know, as Many of you might know, uh, I ran the LA Marathon about a month ago, and I'm going to try to stop using it as an illustration because I feel like I'm at that, that border of like being annoying or like overusing it, so no guarantees, but I'm going to try. And it was, a, it was a crazy experience. It was a blur. Like, I remember like bits and pieces. All I remember is just like running and just like, oh, like I might have blacked out in some parts, but there was one vivid memory that I had. It was around mile 18, and for some reason, um, the LA Marathon, you know, administration, they changed the course, right? Usually you'd end in a nice downhill on, uh, in Santa Monica. They changed it where Century City, you see the finish line, right? So I'm running here, mile 18. I'm passing by, I see the finish line, right? Like, okay, how many miles do I have left? Eight more miles. What? <laughs> like, I have to run four more miles, loop around, and that's the finish line, right? Ridiculous. Broke me mentally. <laughs> But all that was separating us, really, were these small orange cones, right? And I remember, like, I wasn't thinking it, but I remember hearing someone else, like, man, I'm so tempted just to, just to cross over. No one would know, right? And then, you know, that wasn't exactly what he said. He had, like, very colorful language. So I assume he was not a Christian. But even this brother that isn't a Christian, he realized that what he was thinking about was a temptation, that it was wrong, Right? Theoretically, he could have done that, and no one would, I mean, I would have probably just like looked at him and like, ah, what's wrong with this guy, right? Like, people around him might have been like, he's a cheater, but nothing would have happened, right? He could have turned around, went to the finish line after running 18, not 26.2 miles, but could he look me in the eye and say, hey, I finished that LA Marathon, right? No, he could not say that. I'd be like, no, you cheated. That is not valid. That is not a legit marathon, right? Because he took a huge shortcut. He took a huge shortcut. And again, in this temptation, in much the same way, Jesus, he could have taken a huge shortcut. 
You didn't have to do that loop to the cross and back to life. You were just taking a shortcut. Skip the suffering. Skip the humiliation. You would have gained all the kingdoms of the world. It's a sweet deal, right? Yet his accomplishment, accomplishment would have been tainted, right? We would have to put air quotes around it. His, his redemption would be invalidated. It wouldn't have counted because he would have taken a shortcut. And what Satan is tempting Jesus to do is to worship a false god for the sake of preserving comfort, avoiding suffering. Effectively, if Jesus took this shortcut, he would be denying his identity, right? If Satan somehow managed to trick Jesus into falling for this trap, Jesus would invalidate himself as a son of God, a.k.a. the Messiah, a.k.a. the Savior of the world, a.k.a. his incarnation would be worthless. No purpose of it. Now, thanks be to God, none of us here have that sort of pressure or uh, weight on our shoulders, right? None of us can offer our lives for the sake of atonement. But all of us here, we're, we're susceptible to the same sort of temptation, right? To take a shortcut in life. Compromise. Right? We kind of entertain these thoughts like the runner I shared about, right? We kind of think about like, hey, like, if no one knew, right? Man, it would be so easy. Man, that would be so comfortable. Especially if this temptation can save us from suffering, right? See, for most of us that are living in or somewhere close to the Orange County, I think the biggest idol we have is comfort, right? For a church like us, especially where most of us are millennials or in the Gen Z category, avoiding suffering, preserving comfort, that's, that's high up on our list of priorities, right? Our culture, it encourages, it encourages us to avoid pain, take the path of least resistance. We do everything in our power to avoid suffering, right? Even if it comes at the cost of compromising our values as Christians. So, with that in mind, we might cheat while we're in school. Collegians sit over here, so. We might cheat while we're in school because we want to avoid the discomfort of acknowledging how irresponsible we were this past quarter. Right? We, want, we might turn a blind eye to misconduct in the workplace because we want to avoid the discomfort of confrontation. We don't want to rock the boat. Right? We might go out for drinks, and the, the purpose is not to get drunk, but it might happen right? because we want to avoid the discomfort of not feeling accepted, of not fitting in with our peers. Right? But when we do those things, we lose sight of the impact of suffering the value of suffering. It's not despite his suffering that Jesus secured salvation for our souls, but through it, right? And likewise, it's not despite suffering, but through it, through suffering, that our character is formed and that we ultimately bring glory to God. See, what Jesus was facing was a choice to take up his cross. Uh, later on in Luke 9.23, this is the challenge he issues to Christians, right? Take up your cross. Deny yourself every day. In Jesus' case, it was a literal cross. But for us today, what Jesus is saying is, hey, following me, you're going to suffer. Somehow, some way, sometime, you're going to suffer. Right? To take up a cross is not to take a shortcut to avoid suffering. To take up a cross is to faithfully endure and be molded by the suffering, by the trials, by the temptations. That's the second temptation, really heavy stuff. So let's look at the third and last temptation in our story. We'll pick up in verse 9. 
And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Heavy, right? This is like the most extreme case of like, you're not down in the Bible. It may be like the history of humanity, right? The devil, he realized that he had to get really really creative, really slimy with this tactics because he realized what he was doing in the past two temptations, they're not going to work. So what does he do? He's, he tries to use, use the very thing that Jesus used to resist him, right, which is the word of God. The devil, he crookedly tries to use scripture to force Jesus to test God's faithfulness. He quotes Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, right? Hey, Jesus, God is going to command his angels to guard you. They're going to bury you up. They're not even going to let your feet touch the ground. Jesus, do it, right? But if you really trust someone, you don't make him prove his love to you, right? If you really have faith in someone, you're not going to force her to show and demonstrate her loyalty to you, right? You don't need to be God. You don't need to have a divine mind to understand that, hey, when you test someone's love, when you test their faithfulness to you, you're actually revealing that you don't trust him, that you have insecurity, you have doubt in that relationship, right? I don't need to tell my dad, hey, like, can you buy me this? I'll know you love me, right? Can you do this for me? That's how I know you love me. No, I don't need to do that because I just know he loves me, right? I know my parents love me. I don't need them to, for, to, to prove their love or faith to me. Conceptually, we know this, but just like Adam and Eve and every other human being in the history of the universe, we fall to this temptation. We fall to it frequently. Right? We, we somehow in our minds come up with ultimatums to God. We think, hey, Lord, if you really care about me, you're going to help me do well on this interview. Right? Lord, if you desire everything to work for my good, you're going to provide this job to me. I've been applying too long. Right? Lord, you know how lonely I've been. Right? Can't go another holiday season alone. If you're near to the brokenhearted, you're going to provide me with a wife. Right? Someone that checks off all the boxes. Or more seriously, God, my grandfather, he's been serving you for so long, so faithfully. Lord, if you, if you heal him of his cancer, that's how I know that you hear me. Right? Or God, you know how desperately we wanted a child, right? We know how, you know how long we've been trying. If you really love us, please just provide us with one, right? You have the power to do so. This temptation to test God extends even to ministry. Like, I'll be honest, right? Sometimes I have these thoughts, Lord, I put so much time into sermon prep and driving the trailer. I do all that. Like, how come our church is so stagnant? Lord, why won't you honor all the effort that I put into service, right? What's taking so long for our church to gain momentum? God, can't you see how much I care about this ministry? Why, why aren't things turning out the way we planned it to be? I'm doing it for you. We're, we're, we're doing these things for you. Why aren't you using it? You, ha you have to use it. You have to bless it, right? 
The temptation to test God's faithfulness is so much more subtle than we might think. You know, my own personal experience with this temptation to put God to the test came when um, I was a sophomore in college, so not too long ago. Um, But it was my fall quarter, right, when I was taking my uh, civil engineering 101 class. Yeah, somehow I ended up here, but going into college, I was an engineering major. Um, But this class, like, it was, it was a weeder class, right? So there are only three things that counted for grades. It was homework, midterm, and final. Um, and, the, and the catch was to pass this class, you couldn't fail either the midterm or the final. I think you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> I'll openly admit that I was not a good student. I, I don't think I studied. <laughs> like, I just kind of like, thought I would get by. Um, and even if I did, this class was really difficult, right? So even if I did study, it would have been difficult. But you know, in my foolishness, um, that past summer, I had spent a month in Turkey, and I was like, oh, I'm on this mission's high. Like, God, you love me so much. So I was like, midterm time, week four or five. Oh, my goodness. Like, (laughs) all right. Like, have you ever been in a place where, like, you start studying the day before, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, there's no amount of studying, no amount of cramming that's going to help me. Like, only an act of God is going to help me, right? And that's exactly where I was. I said, hey, surely, God, if you care for me, you're going you're gonna to somehow help me to pass this midterm. Like, I don't need an A, just maybe a C minus. I just need to pass, right? I think I got a 47, so that's an F. I, I failed. I failed the class by week four. Didn't know that was possible. And, and you know, the week after, I was just in, like, the, the dark night of the soul. I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, my life is ruined. Thankfully, I can look back now and kind of laugh because I think that actually expedited the process of me, you know, getting on the path to pastoral ministry. But I can see now just how foolish I was in thinking that, right? Like, oh, because God loves me, because I have this great experience, he's going to bless me, right? I kind of put God to the test in that way. And we all come up with these kinds of scenarios, right? We might not say it, but in our minds we think, hey, God has to prove that he cares, that he loves us, right? When he doesn't deliver us or give us a breakthrough, we take that as a sign like, God, he doesn't care about me. Like, he's deserted me. He's far from me. This might be a bit of a hot take, but I think Jesus had those thoughts too. I think Jesus, being a full human being, he had the capacity to think about hypotheticals, to think about these, these seeds of doubt. You know, for us, these, these, these things, these temptations come from either inside or outside. But I think Jesus, he had those thoughts. I think he was thinking, hey, does the Father really love me, right? Has he, has he left me? I think those thoughts were in his mind. But at the same time, he never entertained them to the point where he fully believed in them, Right? He might have had those thoughts in his mind, but he never fell for that temptation, right? He rested upon the Father's proclamation, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, right? He remembered that and trusted that so much that even when these thoughts were in his mind, he never believed them. He was able to fight against that temptation. So if the Son of God believed and trusted God as fully man, Shouldn't we also, as children of God, as adopted children, hold on to that same type of trust? That we indeed are his children, that he indeed cares for us and loves us beyond our wildest imagination. Shouldn't we believe that? 
After resisting this last temptation, this temptation to test God, Luke ends this narrative with verse 13. Right? And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the Bible doesn't say, you know, hey, Jesus was tempted this, 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 this way. But, like, we can safely assume that throughout the rest of Jesus' time on earth, he faced temptation, right? Satan would come at him at, quote-unquote, opportune times to test Jesus, right? Not just this one time, but all throughout his life. And isn't that our experience, right? If the Son of God... If, he, if this was the case with him, can, can we not agree that that's what we experience on a daily basis, right? That we face temptation every single day. And the question is, how are we supposed to fight? So this last portion, we'll just look at Jesus, right? Look at, take a macro look at these three temptations. And I have to caveat that these temptations, these three, were unique to Jesus. Like, Jesus is never going to come, or Satan's never going to come to me and be like, hey, turn this stone to bread. Like, I can't do that. Like, not a temptation, right? He's never going to come and show me, like, all of Buena Park will be yours if you worship me. Like, I don't think, I don't think that'll happen, man. <laughs> like, I don't think it'll happen. So these were unique to Jesus, but the types of temptations they were, right? They're not unique, right? We face these same types of uh, tests. And, and Jesus... He provides a template. He is the model that we look to to fight temptation. And it's thoroughly Trinitarian, right? So first, the first way that we fight against temptation is that, hey, in every single temptation, Jesus responded with what? With, with Scripture, right? All three texts that he cited were from Deuteronomy, which is interesting because Deuteronomy recounts how Israel was tested in the wilderness. But whereas they failed, Jesus triumphed, Right? He used scripture as the final authority. And Jesus, he, he didn't know the, the Bible because he was God, right? He didn't have like this photographic memory. But as a Jewish man, he memorized whole portions of the Torah and all the other books of the Bible that were available because ever since he was a child, the culture was to, to read, to learn, and memorize scripture, right? So it's not like Jesus had access to, to the Bible in his mind because he was God, but because just like us, he could read, learn, and memorize, right? Jesus, he was saturated with the word, which is what allowed him to so quickly respond to temptation, right? He went through the most rigorous test prep, even more elite than elite educational institute, to always be ready, right? He was always prepared to fight against temptation. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Though Jesus was empty physically during that time, he was full of the word. So that's the first way we fight against temptation, to have the word ready, available in our minds. Second, not only was he full of the word, but he was full of the spirit, right? Verse 1, Jesus, he was full of the spirit, he was led by the spirit, that's the second aspect of what allowed him and what allows us to fight temptation, right? The Holy Spirit is no different from back then as he is now, right? He's available. He's accessible. He dwells within the hearts of Christians, and that is how we fight against temptation, right? Jesus, he wasn't acting upon his own, but he was being led. He was being guided by the Spirit. As he spent time in the wilderness fasting, spending time in prayer, the fullness of the Spirit was producing fruit inside of him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that, right? 
Can't we devote ourselves to the spiritual practices? Can't we devote ourselves to even five, ten minutes of prayer a day, to meditating, silence, solitude, perhaps even fasting? Can't we try that? Can't we devote ourselves to spiritual practices so that we allow the Spirit to produce fruit inside of our own hearts? That's the second way. And the last way that we face temptation, we've covered God the Father, we've covered the Holy Spirit. The third way to fight temptation is to look to Jesus. So simple, right? right? Jesus is our model. We have to look to him. It's to think about this doctrine of the incarnation. It's to, to know that God actually put on flesh and experienced these trials just as we do today. Jesus is not only our model, though, He's also our teacher, right? The back then his disciples called him rabbi, literally teacher. And Jesus, he knew the answers to the test of temptation, not because someone gave him the answer key, but because he too went through the same tests, same temptations, same trials, and he mastered them. That's how he knew the answers. So his life, Jesus' life was the metaphorical whiteboard where he demonstrated and he teaches us how to fight against temptation, how to fight for holiness. We have to look to Jesus. And again, we're in this series on the incarnation. Jesus being fully God, it didn't cheapen his obedience. He had to learn it, and he now invites us to learn from him. He didn't take matters into his own hand and turn the stone to bread. But later, he followed and obeyed God and fed thousands and eventually called himself the bread of life. Jesus, he didn't take a shortcut for the sake of comfort, but he chose to walk the long road toward his death, carrying the very instrument that he would be nailed upon. He didn't test God by throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus, he didn't throw himself down, but he lowered himself from heaven's heights he put on flesh and eventually was raised up, first on a cross and then from the grave. And that's exactly why Satan was trying so hard to tempt Jesus. He wanted to stop the cross and the resurrection from happening. Each temptation that we saw, it was aimed at invalidating Jesus' humanity, right? It was to show you can't possibly resist temptation as a man. You need to, you need to tap into your divinity, Right? He wanted to catch Jesus cheating so that his work would be negated. Right? He didn't care that Jesus at the same time was providing an example and template for us to learn from. He, all he was concerned about was to catch slipping, Jesus slipping even once because that would have been enough. Right? Just one step in the proof. But we see that Christ never once cheated, never took the answer key, never failed the test. And because of that, we're now offered salvation. We can view temptation differently, right? Like, why, does why do we even have to fight temptation? It's because we can see temptation differently in light of what Christ has done, right? We don't see temptation as pass or no pass, where passing is salvation and no pass is eternal damnation. But now, as Christians, we see the temptations as tests in our lives, to, to, see, to show us, where are you with God, right? Where are you? How are you going to respond to this temptation, right? Do you really trust him fully? Are there any area in your life uh, where, where you're going to try to take matters into your own hands, right? Are there seeds of doubt, right? As Christians, when we fall to temptation, we should be heartbroken, right? 
We should, we should be agonizing over the fact that we've sinned against God. But at the same time, we know that we're offered grace, we're offered mercy time and time again so that when we do fall, we have access to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit to face the next temptation with them. Right? It's interesting, uh, in verse 14, Luke writes, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Right? Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. After facing these temptations, after overcoming him, he re- returned in power. And what does that tell us? It tells us, as we resist, as we continue to fight temptation, we become strengthened. We become more equipped to face the next temptation, right? Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, and we have access to that power today. So to close, church, especially in this season of Advent, let's be thankful for this aspect of the incarnation. Let's be thankful for this beautiful doctrine that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he faced temptation, fully God, fully man, that Jesus, the human son of God, chose to live in absolute submission to the Father, to the will of God, and doing that, he provides us with the model. So let us, as adopted children of the Father, be saturated by the word of God, be filled by the Holy Spirit, and always look to the Son as we continue to fight against temptation on this side of heaven. This time, uh, before we sing our response song, I want to lead us in a time of reflection, of prayer, um, where let's take a moment just to briefly in silence think about our lives, about how we approach temptation, right? Do we have this doubt inside of our hearts and in our minds? Are we tempted to kind of take things into our own hands instead of relying upon God? Bring that to the Lord, right? Do do we um, test God, right? Do we think that he has to prove himself to us? Who are we to think that? Confess that to the Lord, right? Let's think about just the different areas, different temptations, and see how, as Christians, how during this season of Advent, we can grow in our fight for holiness and against temptation. So let's pray for a couple moments, and I'll close for us.